Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 23. Um, if you're in the Church Bible, it's on page 1182. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you have heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So we come together again, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear your word now, help us to hear it as just that, as your word, as you revealing yourself to us. We pray for an encounter with you today. We pray for all the changes and implications that that brings. Lord, may your Holy Spirit work in us in this time. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. When we're reading the Bible, we instinctively look for the so what, for the, well, that's fine, but what difference does this actually make? Now, in some parts of the Bible, that is a difference in a very specific area in our life or a very certain context, but in this part of the Bible, it's more a case of what difference doesn't it make? Because there is no area in your life that is not going to be impacted by a statement like, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Because there are a lot of things in your life. One of the, the great thinkers of the, the 19th, the early 20th centuries, Abraham Kuyper, put it this way. He said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And it's sometimes said that Colossians is a letter about that, a letter about the supremacy of Christ, of Christ over all. It's this lifted up view of how great Jesus is. And that, if you were here last week, that was the line I took last week when we started this series. And I read these verses to you describing this colossal Christ standing astride the universe in victory 
over sin, over death, in rule over everything. But the question is, why would we need a letter like that? Especially, why is Paul writing a letter like this to Christians? He knows this, this church in Colossae are Christians. Why is he writing to tell them that Jesus is God or that Jesus makes peace with God through his death on the cross? Don't they already know that? They couldn't have become Christians unless they knew that, unless they knew who Jesus is, unless they knew what Jesus had done and trusted in that. I think he's writing because they need the reminder, and I think we also do, because if we're honest, there are always some square inches in our lives or even square miles sometimes where we're not recognizing who Jesus is. We're not living as though Jesus is Lord over all. So Paul is writing to elevate our lives lived in Christ, our human existence, by elevating, lifting up our view of Christ. It's sort of like a tablecloth on a table. And imagine this fully laid table. But you stand a person in each corner and they start lifting up the tablecloth. And everything on it gets lifted up too. It either gets lifted up or it falls off. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's enlarging our view of Christ. He's lifting up your view of who Jesus is and what he does. And what impact that has. And if you have this big view of Jesus, everything else in your life is going to be gathered up, is going to be lifted up by that. And see how that works. These verses kind of split roughly into two parts. Some of the, the interpreters of this say that verse 15 to 20 is Paul either quoting or writing an early Christian hymn. And there is a kind of poetry or, or repetition to it. If it's a song, it's a song with two verses, each of which starts by calling Jesus firstborn. You see it there in verse 15. He is the firstborn over all creation. And then in verse 18, he is the firstborn from among the dead. And both times that, that title, firstborn, is not being used literally. It's being used symbolically. It is picture language. In, in ancient times, the firstborn child had a position of honor in the family. Being firstborn would put you in line to inherit everything that belonged to your parents in the event of their death. But before you go running off, all the firstborns in here, before you go running off to buy your Lamborghini, that means you also inherit the responsibility to care for the rest of the family, the authority to lead the family, to guide them, to seek out what is good for them. And the firstborn also had a sense of being the start of something new, the start of the next generation. And so each of these <coughs> firstborn titles, they say something about Jesus' supremacy, about his high position. And around each of them, Paul builds a verse of this song. So verse 15 to 17 is a verse about Christ over creation. 
Christ is the firstborn over all creation. And then in verse 18 to 20, and then he goes on up to 23 and explains it a little bit, Christ is Christ over corruption. He's the firstborn from among the dead. So let's start with the first of those in verse 15. Christ over creation. When Paul talks about Jesus as the firstborn over all creation, he pairs that with another title which Joe was talking to us about earlier, the image of the invisible God. He is God become visible. An image is something visible. It's something that we see. Normally an image is a visible copy of something that is also visible. You might have a photo of a person or a car or a tree or something. But here Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the God we did not know, we could not see, made known, made visible. And there's a way to take that, that image idea out of context in, and say that Jesus is simply a picture of God, that he is someone who looks like God, who can teach us something about what God is like, but is not actually himself God, as though God had just kind of taken a selfie of himself and and texted it to us. And so we have a picture of what God is like, but we don't have God himself. In this way of looking at it, Jesus being firstborn over creation would mean that he was actually born, that he actually had a moment where he started, where he was created. But Paul wants to right away cut out that option for us and say, this is not that. And so in verse 16 to 18, he goes on and makes it clear that Jesus is God made visible. He makes God visible because he himself is God. Yes, that God, the one that created everything, not just a copy of that God, not even a lesser God, not even a demigod, but the one true God. So when Paul says, in him, all things were created, he means Jesus cannot have a beginning. Jesus cannot have had a start point. He cannot be in the category of things created by God because all things that were created were created in him. For that to be true, he had to be there before things were being created. He had to have always been there, otherwise there would be something that was created that wasn't created in him. And he extends this out to all kinds of things, things in heaven, things on earth, angels, people, things visible and invisible, even the forces at work in the universe that we can't see. All kinds of of powerful things, all kinds of other people and organizations are ultimately under him. He is before them all, both in terms of his existing before them in eternity past, but also in terms of his status before them as the number one, as the top of the ladder. Jesus is holding the world together. Everything that is, everything that has any kind of power, Jesus is holding it together. He is not simply one power among many in the world that are at work. He is the one above the many. And the many only have the power that they have because he allows it. 
In him all things hold together. Is this something that you need to be reminded of today or to perhaps hear for the first time? Because we can look around and look around the world and see so much brokenness, so much fallenness, so much death and destruction, even so much evil. We can see the push and the pull of all kinds of different powers and forces that are at work. It only takes a minute scrolling down a news website to see it. Do you need to be reminded that there is somebody who's in control here? Perhaps in your own life, too, there is a sense of things spinning, spinning out of control. Pieces gradually falling off, like a satellite crashing down out of orbit. And Paul reassures you that Jesus is holding the world together. There is a plan. He's got this. He's powerful and he's good and he knows what he's doing. He's got this. He's holding the world together. It's this spectacularly enlarged view of who Jesus is. But there's perhaps a danger on the other side of overemphasizing this cosmic Christ, this, this Jesus holding the world together. I don't mean it shouldn't be emphasized. It certainly should. But there is something else that Paul holds alongside this as equally central to his gospel, to his good news about Jesus. And this is that Christ is not just the firstborn in creation. He is the firstborn in new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is Christ over corruption. This is Jesus as the firstborn, the start of something new, the start of a new generation. Whereas the first time that firstborn title was paired with God becoming visible, in verse 18, I think it's, it's fitted with God becoming human. <coughs> or verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. He emphasizes in, in verse 22, Jesus had a physical body. He actually died. And you might skew one way or the other. I don't know which of those sides, which of those descriptions of Jesus perhaps you gravitate towards when you think of him. You think of of Jesus, the man, Jesus, the human in a physical body. Or do you think of Jesus, God, Lord over all? Both of those are held together in the New Testament. But we often separate them or drift to one side or the other. You can be entranced by this cosmic Christ, this colossal Christ, but he becomes so abstract, so far removed from us, that he's just this this abstract idea that doesn't really have a lot of impact on the day-to-day groundedness of our everyday lives. Just this vague idea, this philosophical idea of God The uniqueness of Jesus is that he is both. He is both God and man, both so far above us that he holds the universe together and yet also so close to us that he became one of us. 
And it's actually Jesus' humanity, Jesus' groundedness, his physicality, his coming to earth and dying and being raised, his, his coming and, and doing all the miracles that he did that were recorded in history. His resurrection too, that had all the, the, the evidence that testifies to it really happening. It's actually that that helps us have confidence in the cosmic Christ, have confidence to know that he was more than just a man. He was God coming to us in terms that we could understand, speaking to us in our language, in our language of being human. And if Jesus as firstborn in creation means he holds the world together, Jesus as firstborn from the dead means that he holds the church to God. He is the head of the body, the church. And then in verse 21, he goes on to describe that journey of the Christian, of what it means that you are held to God. What you were, what you are now, and what you will be. What you were once, you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. What you were is an enemy, an enemy of God. If you're not a Christian today, I'm afraid that is a description of you, of how you are relating to God. I know that's not an easy description to hear. It's not an easy one for me to say. But if Jesus really is who this letter says he is, then you living your life as though he is not is a crime against reality. You can think of that in terms of your behavior, the actions that deny that Jesus is Lord over everything, or you can think of that in terms of in your minds as well, in our inner lives where we, we construct this alternate reality where it's not Jesus that holds everything together. It's me. It's my job to do that. And no wonder that it feels like things are spinning out of control. No wonder if we have that feeling of alienation from reality. It was never meant to be this way. You were never meant to have the supremacy that is his, not ours. Christians, that is what you were. Here's what you are now. But now he has reconciled you. That stage of your life is over now. Through Jesus, you have been reconciled to God. And if you are not a Christian, that reconciliation is open to you today too, for free. Reconciliation means more than simply a dropping of weapons, the end of hostilities. It's a positive thing. It's a re-entry into a warm, loving relationship and friendship with God. And that peace with God comes in verse 20 through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. This is how much God is committed to reconciliation with you. 
If you feel alienated, if you feel guilty, come to Jesus. You declared war on God. You committed a crime against reality, but instead of calling down a lightning strike on you, what did God do? He became human. He became human so he could be struck down instead of you. Jesus died in my place to take my punishment for my evil behavior, for my enmity to God. You turn to Jesus now. The enmity is over. God has declared you reconciled to him. That is what you are now. Enjoy that. And here is what you will be. To present you holy in his sight. Without blemish and free from accusation. You will be free from corruption one day. Because Christ is over corruption and you are in Christ, you will be free from corruption. You will have that victory over corruption because he has it. And he shares it with you. You will be free from the corruption of death. He's the firstborn from the dead, the first of many. You'll be free from that inward corruption, that hostility in your mind against God. That will go. This is what Jesus is doing in his universe. And it starts with his church. He's cleaning it up. He's bringing us in line with his goodness, with his guiltlessness. And he started to work in us already. That's the direction. Jesus is holding the church to God. He's making us pure. He's freeing us from corruption. And that's what you were. That's what you are. And that's what you will be. So what now? What should we do now if Jesus is who he says he is here? If Christ is over creation and over corruption, what does it mean for Christ to be over you? I started by saying that what Paul says here has an impact on every square inch of our human existence. Now, obviously, I'm not going to be able to explore every square inch of your existence. But I think there are two general principles, two big things that we can each take and this week perhaps go away and think about how they work out in every square inch of our lives. Perhaps do some thinking about what it means to work out each of these in every corner of our lives. In verse 23, Paul shows us two responses to Christ overall. The first is this, hold on to Christ. Hold on to Christ. There's a faint note of warning here. All this is yours if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel that you heard. That if in verse 23 can seem a little bit ominous, can't it? It can start you thinking, but what if I don't? Of course, there is a danger of complacency, but I don't think that's the angle that Paul is taking here. 
I don't think that's his focus here. There is a warning there, but it's there kind of in the same way that a fly is there on a windscreen. It, it's there as one word in this massive presentation of why Jesus is worth putting your faith in. Paul isn't giving us a view of faith which is predominantly that it's all about you having to secure your eternal destiny by trying hard, by being a super strong Christian. That goes against the grain of everything that he has just said about God reconciling us to himself through Jesus. Everything that came before is a reason to continue in your faith. So it's against that backdrop, that huge presentation of a Jesus who has proved his trustworthiness that he then says, and make sure you keep trusting in him. Last week in verse 5, we saw how faith springs from having a certain hope for the future. And again, he's reinforcing that hope. You can have faith. You can put your trust in Jesus for the future because his intention for you is to free you from everything that corrupts you, everything that breaks you down. You can put your trust in Jesus because in him all things hold together. He is a reliable pair of hands. You can put your trust in Jesus because it is his desire. In fact, it is his successful already completed mission to reconcile you to God. You can hold on to Christ because he is holding on to you. And then work that out into every corner of our lives. Hold on to Christ in everything. Abraham Kuyper, who I quoted earlier, is a fascinating character, really. He He really put his money where his mouth is when he said every square inch of human existence. He was a a theologian. Uh, He founded a denomination within the church. He also founded a newspaper. He also founded a university. He also somehow had the time to be prime minister of the Netherlands for a few years. (laughs) That's, That's an intimidating CV, isn't it? Every area of life under Jesus' lordship. Last month, we were thinking about this in our evening service. We were thinking about different areas of life and what it means that Christ is lord over them, Christ and the workplace, Christ and the arts, Christ and the mind. We still listen to those talks on the website. But even if not, just just think about this principle. Think about this. Hold on to Christ in every square inch of your life. Hold on to Christ in your work. Hold on to Christ in your studies. When the people around you dismiss Jesus, hold on to him. Work out where it is that they are wrong. Hold on to Christ in the way that you think about politics. Have a clear view of Jesus over all kings, over all governments, over all thrones, and authorities. Know that if somebody is in power, he is in power over them. And he knows what he's doing. He's bringing it all together. Everything is in that direction towards being reconciled. 
Hold on to Christ in the night when you're alone with your own thoughts, with your darkest temptations, with your deepest fears. Figure out what difference it makes that Jesus is Lord and he has set you on this trajectory to holiness, to purity. Figure out what difference it makes that Jesus has conquered death for you. Whatever it is that you are tempted to add to Christ or to replace him with, fill your eyes with this first, this big view of Christ over creation and Christ over corruption and hold on to him. Hold on to Christ. And secondly, hold out Christ. He moves naturally from one to the other in verse 23. He goes on, continue in your faith in the gospel. This is the gospel which you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Proclaiming to every creature, he concludes where he begins with Christ over every creature, every creature. Christ over all creation. And he sees his place in this as letting every creature know that Christ is over them. Isn't he basically saying here, Jesus is their Lord. That's, that's the objective, absolute reality. Jesus is their Lord, whether they know it or not. Wouldn't it be so much better for them if they knew it? If they don't, they're going to fall off the tablecloth when it gets lifted up. He's not yet at the point of telling the Colossians, join me in this proclaiming, but he, that, that will come later. But he's kind of making it obvious, isn't he? That this is a natural step, next step from recognizing the value of seeing Jesus as Lord over all to recommending the value of seeing Jesus as Lord over all. If people are living under the lordship of Christ, which according to this, everyone is, they need to know about it. If you're, if you're renting a place, you need to know who your landlord is. You need to know so that you can pay what you owe and continue to live there. And you need to know so that if anything goes wrong, you know who to go to for help. We are all lodgers in a universe that is by and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone needs to know that. If you're not a Christian and you've been brought along by Christian friends, if they just won't shut up about Jesus to you, they can't help it. You need to know this is Jesus' universe. In every area that we hold on to Christ, we also hold out Christ in our, in our minds, in our conversations, in our colleges, in our workplaces, in the home, in public life. Every square inch needs to know who its Lord is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do confess that so often we have fallen short of acknowledging 
just how great you are, just how far your kingdom extends. We're sorry, Lord, for the, the corners of our lives where we hold out against your kind and generous rule, where we resist your leading and even your love. Lord, we pray that you would teach each one of us what it means to hold on to you, to accept, to bow the knee. We pray that in that we would find you to be the good Lord that you have shown yourself to be. Gracious and merciful, patient and faithful. And Lord, as we enjoy that more and more, as we enjoy our reconciliation through you, as we enjoy knowing God, your Father, as our Father, and having the Holy Spirit live within us and you in us by him, as we are swept up into the life that you offer us. Lord, we pray that we would find such joy in that, that we would hold out Christ as well. For your glory, Lord. Amen. Amen.